Alone is so intensely psychological that it, it, it will strip you down. It, it takes, you know, there's no facade. You can't maintain a facade out there or a persona of, you know, this, this rugged adventure guy and, and be on camera every day like that and, and just hold it all together. It's going to wear you down to the person that you actually are. Welcome to the Adventure Deficit Podcast. We're here to promote lifelong learning through the context of adventure. Through our one-on-one interviews, we capture in-depth stories across a variety of subjects, emphasizing a new life lesson in every episode. We're on a mission to entertain, educate, and inspire you to embrace new challenges, reflect, push through fears, and get out there in search of your own adventures. We passionately pursue good story, and we'll run, climb, wade, ride, hunt, ski, or paddle our way into new ones all in search of continual growth. We call it taking our medicine, and we invite you to join us for today's dose. Dave, how you doing today? Doing great. Glad to be here. We appreciate you uh, and your willingness to share your story, man. Um, let's jump into the early Dave McIntyre story. Tell us a little bit about uh, your upbringing. I grew up in eastern Pennsylvania, and uh, the, the land that we lived on used to be the uh, a site of a Lenape Indian village. And arrowheads would come up in the garden and, and things like that, and I was just totally fascinated by Native Americans. And I... Uh, I, my life could have gone either way. I had, you know, the this, this suburban subdivision on the one side and a huge forest on the other, and I grew up basically out in that forest, just uh, fascinated with Native Americans and, and all that, you know, bushcraft, hunting, fishing, trapping, uh, all the outdoors stuff, and uh, that's where I lived. Then my parents had a house up in the Blue Mountains uh, north of Redding, Pennsylvania, and we used to spend every weekend up there. And uh, my dad... Um, drank too much basically and uh, oftentimes it was just easier to go off in the mountains than it was to be at the cabin and we'd tell them my brother and I would tell them hey just drop us off on the mountain on the way up and pick us up on the way back and see in a few days so uh, my brother Carl and I basically spent every weekend we could out on the out on the mountains making every mistake possible and uh, for me wilderness survival became the reason I was going out to the woods to learn how to overcome those uh, those challenges and situations and not repeat the same mistakes again and again and uh, just learn how to live out there on the mountains. No kidding. So yeah. it was a bit of a puzzle for you. It was. To me, it was, you know, how do you, how do you do this for real? How do you go out by yourself and just be totally self-sufficient in the wilderness? Uh, that just lit a fire under me. And I did that. All, I started doing that when I was about 15 years old and uh, all the way up through college just completely every chance I got I took off to the bush to basically solve the wilderness survival equation no kidding yeah um so chicken chicken or the egg type scenario it sounds like somewhat by by necessity you were you were you had mentioned uh dad drank too much and uh it sounds like heading out into the the wilderness was uh was anecdotal at that point but uh from what I'm gathering you you picked up on a love for it during the process, and oh yeah, and it became. I mean, it, to, to me, it was just a sense of total freedom. Yeah, to be able to to be able to go out there without having any kind of support system, to be totally self sufficient in the bush. To me, it was just total a total sense of freedom, 
to uh, to go off and, and do that and to to enjoy uh, just being the master of my own domain, you know, and and understanding how much uh, nature can mess with that. Yeah, and solving those problems. You had mentioned fifteen, seventeen. You and your brother were were out in the bush doing uh, doing some pretty uh, rudimentary survivalist exercises pretty regularly. What? Uh, how did this overlap with your your studies? Uh, I was the kid that didn't go to high school. Uh, you know, I, I would skip school all the time. Um, I remember one year, my I think my sophomore year, I missed thirty eight days of school. I skipped playing hooky, and I was usually out hunting, doing you know I would. I was a horrible kid at that point, and uh, I received Christ when I was at the end of uh, almost 16 years old, and that that changed around. Um, I stopped uh, smoking weed and, and that that kind of thing, and uh, that that was a major turning point in my life at that point. So my senior year, I went to a Christian school. My parents said, you know, we're, we'll help you go to college. We're not going to help you go to high school. So I actually paid my way through Christian school for my senior year. No kidding. Yeah, and that was uh, that was a good experience. Had some some great people that really invested in me at that age. Hmm. And uh, from there, I decided I wanted to be a, a school teacher. I wanted to teach high school because I had teachers and people uh, in that role that invested so heavily in me, and I thought that's how, a way I could give back. Yeah. Um, jump back into some of the survival stuff early on. Did uh, did you make some mistakes that nearly cost you? Oh yeah, I remember one time walking home seven miles because uh, we were just unprepared for the rain. You know, and uh, another time my brother and I did a, a twenty mile night hike. Uh, about seven miles of that was off trail, and, and I remember coming home from that, and my feet were just totally covered with blisters. I mean, they were hamburger, just wrecked, and just wrecked, totally. Um, yeah, I've slept in ponchos wrapped up in in mud puddles, and. Uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of things that just just made mistakes, and after a while, you develop a sense of what can go wrong, and prepare for it. And then, the better you get at preparing for it, the less you really have to confront it. And I was at the point where my pack was actually never unpacked. You know, we just leave it packed and restock on food or whatever, and and head back out the next weekend. But this is what you guys did. This is what you yes. Lived this for. is what we did. Yeah, we lived for this. Yeah, that we would just go out on the Appalachian Trail, or we had a place uh, called St. Anthony's Wilderness, north of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which I I know that area like the back of my hand now, because we just spent so much time out there. How many nights would you uh, would you and your brother be sleeping? Would you stay two, three nights? Or well, it was just... usually just the weekends because okay. we either had school or work, right? You know, but yeah, that was what we would do every weekend, basically. So mom and dad would lo- load the boys up. Did you have any other siblings? I have an older brother, but he wasn't really. Pre- didn't participate in this. Okay, so mom and dad would load up the three of you boys. Two younger brothers would skip out ten miles from the cabin, right? And uh, show and just up. go off in the bush and do our thing, and come back and <laughs> show up three days later. Yeah, but there was mistakes I made. One time we were hiking in August. We had about a twenty mile hike to do, and we had you know the, the trail map showed springs all down the trail, so I was only carrying one canteen of water, and we figured just restock on water and keep going. And every one of those springs was dry. So we did a 20-mile hike in August heat in Pennsylvania on one quart of water, severe dehydration at the end. And these are the things that marked me as a, as a survivalist or survival instructor that I've been there. I've been in, in the throes of you know 10% loss of body weight for dehi- from dehydration. I should have been hospitalized at the end of that, that hike. And, uh, yeah, it's horrible. I had food poisoning once on the trail, and it's just, just miserable experiences that you learn to avoid and prepare for. And then those become the basis of experience for actually teaching these skills later. What an I, I mean, it sounds miserable from here in the warm house, but what an ideal scenario. What a, con- a semi-controlled 
platform by which to explore your skill set, right? Three days at a time. Right. I mean, that's about the maximum three threshold you can go anywhere with, with being unprepared. Yeah, it's that, that, that typical 72-hour survival scenario. The typical experience lasts 72 hours. If you're not found by then, chances are you probably won't be or something's really gone wrong. Um, most people are found within 72 hours, so how do you, how do you survive that? What, what, what do you know you're going to encounter? And I've been through that 72-hour period countless times, yeah. again and again and again. And then uh, you know, in Brazil, being able to teach that for 15 years, uh, both on a ministry basis and for paying customers, that was, uh, you know, that I, I went there with a base of experience of yeah. having screwed up. Yeah. I say all the time, if, you have, if the bush hasn't handed your head to you, you didn't go in, long, you know, go in far enough or stay long enough because it's going to happen to everybody. That is incredible. Okay. Uh, so you mentioned uh, a little bit about Brazil already. Tell us what, uh, what got you there. Well, in between was uh, Bible college. I went to, I'm a graduate of Baptist Bible College in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania. I have a degree in secondary education. And while I was there, I met and fell in love with my wife, and we got married in 1989. And she had been a missionary kid to Brazil. So the first, uh, my first teaching assignment uh, was in Brazil. I, I actually did my student teaching in Brazil. And uh, I, I stayed there for two years teaching American missionary kids uh, in English. I didn't have to learn Portuguese to do my job down there. Okay. But um, it was during that two years that our, our daughter was born, Erin, uh, in 1991. And then uh, I was there in Brazil for two years and learned just felt, I just fell in love with the Brazilian culture and uh, the people there. And by the time I left, I was, I was conversant in Portuguese. I wasn't fluent and really had a love for the, the country and its people. And I got to see the generational impact of the gospel on people from watching the other missionaries and seeing that, uh, well, I came home and was teaching in a Christian school after that, and I realized I could teach about Gettysburg and American history and World Civ and all these things, and it's not going to have the same impact that teaching the gospel, teaching the Bible will have on people's lives. So that was uh, a major uh, thought that the Lord used to, to convict me for my need to go back to Brazil as a missionary. And in 1995, uh, we candidated with the missions organization and were accepted. And uh, that necessitated a career change for me. I had to become a, an ordained Baptist pastor to work uh, in Brazil. Okay. So I went through the, the process of ordination as an assistant pastor, uh, did an internship for two and a half years, um, raised support for two and a half years. I uh, went to like 80 different churches to fill out our, our support requirements. And then in 1999, with a, our second daughter in tow, we went to Brazil as church planners. Wow. And your wife at the time was pregnant with your second daughter? or No, you, she, you, she was three months old when we went to Brazil. Okay. So we went to Brazil with a three-month-old baby and our other daughter in tow. And uh, then I had a, a year of language study. And then after that, a year-long uh, internship at a Brazilian church. Oh, wow. So it was basically a 10-year process to become qualified for what I did in Brazil, yeah. just to do the ministry aspect of it. And break that, break that down. What did you do in Brazil, Dave? I was a church planner. Um, my first seven years in Brazil, I was a, uh, a youth pastor uh, working with a, a church that had been established already. And uh, they had about 85 people in the church uh, when we started, and they had about 300 when we left. Wow. And the, the youth group had 12 kids in it when I started in 85 when I left. So it was... Uh, quite explosive growth over those uh, seven years that I was there. And after that, I was, uh, I, I took my own church there that had lost its pastor a year before and half their congregation and tried to turn that church around. And unfortunately, that didn't happen. But um, then after that, I was uh, in an advisory role for seven churches in the area. 
But during this whole thing, starting in 2000, I founded the Perardua Wilderness Ministry, which is, uh, you know, when I went to Brazil, I thought I was giving up the wilderness. That was, this is the amazing thing. You know, I have this love for the wilderness and this passion for getting out in the bush, and I'm moving to a city of 5.5 million people, Belo Horizonte. It has the same population as the nation of Finland. You know, it's a, it's a huge urban sprawl, and I was working in a downtown church in this concrete jungle. And I loved the ministry, but I hated living in the city. I just hated, I couldn't, I, I was felt very oppressed. Claustrophobic. Yeah. And my father-in-law, who was there as a missionary at the time, he, he, he could see I was falling apart. So he says, hey, let's get out of the city and we'll drive out in the country and, and find, you know, just get out of the city for a while. So we drove south. And I realized you drive an hour and a half outside of that city, you're in the howling wilderness. And we found a place called the Waimee Forest where if in the lowland it was all jungle, single canopy, Mata Atlantica jungle. And then in the middle elevation it was uh, like scrubland. So because the, the land there drains it's all made of crushed quartz. It's all crushed rock. So when the, when the rain hits it, it all falls into the lowlands where it grows jungle, but it also drains the uplands, and they, they, they're bone dry. <clears throat> so Interesting. Yeah. So above this was mountains that went up to 6,000 feet. Wow. Yeah. So you had this, this place. Literally, I would park my car at the same ranch, and if I, in the rainy season, I, if I hiked downhill, I was in rainforest. And if I hiked up into the uplands, I was in desert in the dry season. So the, the exact same place, you have, had to use desert techniques in the uplands and jungle techniques in the lowlands. And then you had mountains that went up to 6,000 feet above, which are their own ecosystem above 4,500 feet. They're, they're completely, the vegetation changes, everything's different. Yeah, it's now you're getting into almost alpine type. It's a tropical type. alpine ecosystem, which yeah. is amazingly beautiful. Crazy. So, yeah, so I was in wilderness survival heaven. So basically the Lord brought me through this process of, of being self-trained in wilderness survival all those years and brought me to a place that just where he could just turn me loose to play. And, of course, I was going out there all the time. And uh, I'd bring my pictures back and show them to the kids in youth group. And they're like, oh, you got to take us out there, you know. So I did, and it was a disaster. <laughs> These kids had never been outside the city. You know, they're, the one kid said, Pastor Mac, you got to remember, we're apartment boys, you know, because I did all the work. I made all the fires. I built, you know, all the tents, you know, everything. It was all on me. And I was playing wilderness guide to these kids that just had no clue how yeah. to be safe. And they're, they're just doing dangerous stuff. And they wanted to go out again. So I said, look, I'll take you out, but I'm going to teach you basic wilderness survival. You know, I'm going to teach you how to, you know, handle yourselves out there. And uh, I went out there and, you know, shelter, fire, water, signals, navigation, and food gathering, you know, and just basically set up this curriculum and, and taught them what I know. And uh, it was just, they loved it. And I loved it. It was great. I remember, remember the, the one thing I said to the kids, I get them out there, I said, guys, look around. Do you see your mother here? I am not your mother. I'm going to do the thing. You're going to watch me do the thing. And the very next time the thing has to be done, you will be doing the thing. Okay? I'm not here to carry your water. I'm not here to do for you what I can train you to do for yourselves. And it's like this light bulb goes off in my head that I'm a missionary, and that's exactly my job. And it all kind of came to a f you know, fusion. All these, all these different traces from my past just kind of found this nexus in wilderness ministry where – I can take kids out of the city, get them totally out of their comfort zone, put them in a place where they have absolutely no clue what they're doing, and start training them to do these things. And every one of those components had a spiritual or leadership aspect that we would bring out. And just the, the best time of Perardua was always uh, at, around the firelight at night, you know, around the fire, just talking and listening to the kids and the, the things they were coming up with. Yeah. 
it was a I remember one time coming back over the, in Belo Horizonte, as you're driving north, you hit the, the Cerro Coral, which is like a mountain range on the city. And as you come over it, all of a sudden the whole city spread in front of you. And one of the kids in the back says, wow, we're headed into the jungle now, aren't we? Hmm. I was like, yes, they get it. Get it. Yeah, yeah they get it. Yeah. That's really cool, Dave. And the bush is the perfect classroom because cause and effect are instant. Right. You know, you literally, you make your bed and you lie in it. You have to. And, yeah, you have to perform and you have to, you have to rely on other people and you have to stick hmm. together. And uh, one of the exercises I would do at the end, I would have them draw straws, and the person who lost had to carry all the packs. And uh, it was it was great. At, at first, all the other kids that, did, that didn't lose, they're like, yeah, you get to carry all the packs. And they literally load you know, four or five packs on this one kid, and they start hiking out. And we're in the river valley, and you got to hike out for about two miles up this really you know steep trail. Mm. And they're all joking around at the bottom, and, and they get about you know 100 yards up that incline. And the kid is really starting to struggle. He's really hurting. And they're like, hey, Pastor Matt, can we, can we take your packs? No, 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 you can't take your pack. And uh, I'd say to the kid who's carrying it, you know, I always let the Lord choose the kid. You know, he, he literally draws straws. You want to give up? No, I don't want to give up. I don't want to give up. This is important. I'm going to do it. And they're, the kid's dying. I mean, they're really, this is jungle heat. You know, they're really, really struggling. And after a while, I'd sit him down and say, okay, what, what's going on here? You know, what is this? I said, this is your average church. We got one guy carrying all the load, and everyone else just walking around. Nobody's sharing. Each no one's sharing burden. the loads. No one's sharing each, each other's burdens. You know, how does it feel to watch somebody struggle in such a real sense? And I said, it feels horrible. You know, and of course the kid's dying. You know, he he wants to give up. He wants to give these packs off too. But universally, the kid who was carrying the packs was always more dedicated to that proposition than than anyone else was. You know, militating to take their pack up. It was just a an instant lesson for them. Mm. Wow. Um, move us, transition us uh, out of Brazil, Dave. There was uh, there was some stuff that went down um, that got you back into the states prior to your departure for um, the History Channel's show called Alone. Yeah, um, Brazil can be a very stressful place to live. You know, we had uh, there was a lot of things going on while all this ministry was happening. There was also some some severe attacks that had taken place against our family. Um, I'm not going to go into to great detail on that, but it was you know horrific stuff, things that would break anybody. And uh, in 2008, the dollar lost 55% of its purchasing power in Brazil, so that cut our support level by 55%. Wow. And uh, that was the impetus to start the uh, Bushmaster Survival School because I had a, a uh, union of family visa, and I could legally work in Brazil. So I started up this side business of taking basically – basically taking the Paraguay Wilderness Ministry curriculum and opening it up to paying customers. My wife had some chronic health issues we were dealing with, and they were misdiagnosed, and there was some severe problems with uh, the way uh, the agency was handling some things that we had gone through as a family. And uh, basically what it came down to is in 2012, my wife announced we were getting a divorce, and she was out of all of it. And I uh, as a divorced pastor, uh, our mission had a, a policy that divorced people can't serve, so we were out of the mission at that point. And we came here to Michigan. Uh, my wife decided to move here because her parents were here and, and her brother. So I had to live in Michigan, and I found myself uh, living in a single-bedroom apartment in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I got a job inspecting foreclosed homes, and my territory was all of West Michigan. Um, I had never lived here before. I had been here a few times to visit family, but uh, other than that, I really didn't know anything or anyone here. And uh, I basically went from one empty house to the next, photographing empty houses and training contractors to take them up to Fannie Mae Spec and 
make sure they did their jobs. But, uh, I mean, life just threw me this complete curveball. You know, my, the rug was pulled out from under everything I'd ever built up in my life. My entire career was gone. And I uh, just, I felt like I was T-boned in the intersection of life, you know, and uh, I, I say I was T-boned in the intersection of life and I'm laying there in the smoking wreckage and I see the face of the Lord looking in the windshield. I said, Lord, I got hit by a truck. And he's like, yeah, I know I was driving it, mm. you know, and that's how I felt that, uh, that he had stripped away from me everything that I'd ever done. And all that preparation and all that ministry time in Brazil, all of a sudden, everything that I'd ever done in my life was gone. And here I am doing a job which was adequate, but it wasn't didn't pay well, and certainly wasn't uh, didn't it didn't engage my passions or my heart. And uh, after a year and a half of doing that, the company lost the contract for Michigan and 17 other states and closed down operations. So I was out of a job. And uh, I remember a friend of mine, Gene, gave me that that book, uh, "What Colors Your Parachute." Yeah, and it's a, you know it's a it's a good book. It's very it's a fear this fierce personal inventory of what are your passions, what's your education, what's your work experience, your life experience, your hobbies. And you get this this complete picture of who you are as a person on paper. And I, I remember looking at it and thinking, okay, what? who would hire this guy? I mean, I have a passion for the wilderness, wilderness survival instructor. These are the things that survived the wreckage, you know. I like to make YouTube videos in the bush. So, like, okay, I'm a wilderness guy who likes to make movies in the wilderness. You know, who's going to ever hire this guy? And then I get a, a Facebook message uh, you look like a great candidate for our TV show. Could you check it out and apply? And, I, and I'm like, okay, wait, alone? What is this thing? I'd never even heard of it. So I open up the link, and uh, they, they say, we're, we're going to send you anywhere, to a wilderness area anywhere in the world. It may last up to a year. You'll be completely cut off from outside the outside world. No help, no, uh, no modern equipment. And uh, it's going on down this list of things. In the bottom, it says half-million-dollar cash prize to the person who stays the longest. So I'm like, yeah, I can do that. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. That's, and for me, it was like this total hail mary pass at life. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna apply for a TV show, and hey, you know, me among thousands of people. And uh, but I thought if they're sending me a message, then that might put me a little higher up in the list, and not on the bottom of the pile because they've asked me to apply. So I applied and went right through the casting process, and it was uh, August that they invited me to boot camp. Three thousand five hundred people applied for season two, and they took twenty of us out to New York. To boot camp. No kidding. Yeah, and out of that twenty people, ten were going to go on the show. So I've got this fifty-fifty chance once you get to boot camp of being one of those people. Wow! And I thought, okay, all I got to do is beat half the people here, and I'm in. Yeah. And yeah, you know, then I got to see meet who they were, and tell my, us a little bit about uh, some of the candidates. Oh, you know, it was intimidating. First of all, I get in the van, I get off the, the plane, I get in the van, and they were picking up a bunch of other people, and it's like everybody in the van was former military. And they're all talking about Fallujah and these different places they've been in Iraq. And I'm feeling like, okay, I'm definitely the lightweight here because I'm, I'm not a vet, you know. And I, 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 get, I get there to meet the people. There's uh, Dr. Nicole Appellian, who is, has a master's in marine biology, does safaris in Africa, lived with the Bushmen for two years. And uh, Mike Lowe, who was an Air Force SEER instructor, he didn't go through the course, he actually taught it, you know. And um, Jose, who was uh, former Spanish Foreign Legion Special Forces. And it, these people are just... They're like larger than life, most of them, and uh, and you had exposure to some of these guys just being in in the industry and being involved yeah, with survival. Yeah, I, I knew I know a lot of the different personalities out there, and I've I've talked to a lot of people, and um, some of them before they were even famous, and you know you're all there's no such thing as a, as a global survival expert. 
That doesn't exist. You're good where you have spent time on the ground. You know, I'm, I'm good in central Brazil. Put me there, I'm very comfortable. Put me in eastern woodlands, I'm, I'm fine. Now put me on Vancouver Island, I'll, I'll do great. You, there's no such thing as a global expert and people that have these inflated egos and, and things that, to me, that's a sign they haven't spent time in the bush. You know, if you, if you leave the bush arrogant, you haven't experienced the bush. The bush teaches humility. And, and I saw that in a lot of the different, different people there, that they had solid experience and solid skills. And uh, I can't go into all the details they do at, at boot camp, but I did very well in the field portion. I was, uh, in our group, I was the only one that did all the tasks in the allotted time. Okay. And uh, that's only because one of the tasks, I was the only person to complete it. And uh, that was, you know, I, I was one of the people to watch all of a sudden, and I never expected that. And I remember thinking, you know, they, when you go there, they you sign the non-disclosure agreement. They pull back the curtain on the show and tell you exactly how everything's run and everything, and, and it's run with integrity. You know, I, the more I saw about the show, the more I wanted to participate. And I said, Lord, if you do not want me in this show, do not let them give me a slot. And just let, just pull back and let me fail. And it was like the opposite happened. I, I just felt like he was giving me the confidence to perform and to do what I had to do. And uh, yeah, so after boot camp, I got a. They had a. They called me up on Skype one day and offered me a, a slot on the show. And uh, a few weeks later, we were on the island. No kidding, it happened yeah. that fast. Yeah, it's, it's real. It's real quick. It was like, I think it was like three weeks, maybe, between the time they actually offered me the shot and we had to fly out to Vancouver Island. And I. Uh, in that time, I remember I, I, I spent all the last of my money on gear for the show because you have to furnish your own, own equipment. And I, I was taking my guns over to a friend's house to watch them while I was gone, and then my Jeep was rear-ended. And then at a stoplight, and this guy hits me at like 35, 40 miles an hour and totals my Jeep. Uh, so I have no more money. I have no more vehicle. My daughter moved into my apartment, and then I'm on a plane going out to Vancouver Island to go off to the bush. And, uh, you know, a week, we have a week of orientation there. And then all of a sudden it's, it's, it's jump day. You know, we're, we're going to go. Wow. It was, uh, it was quite the experience. And the morning, the morning of, I got up at four o'clock in the morning and I couldn't take my Bible. So I opened it up and and I was just riffing through it and I set it down and, uh, it landed on, on Isaiah chapter 40 and, uh, I was reading through the whole chapter, and I'd forgotten how Isaiah chapter 40 ends. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Youths will grow weary, and young men will stumble and fall, but those that, that hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar, soar on wings, the wings eagles. like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And I wept when I read that That's because that was the Lord verse. telling me what he was going to do for me out there. And I actually wrote that into the hood of my, my rain jacket. I, I took a pen out, and I wrote that verse out on the inside of my rain jacket, uh, to guard my heart and mind. That's incredible, Dave. Um, what comes to mind when you told me that you you got rear-ended is uh, you remember when you said <clears throat> a young boy in your group said, Pastor Dave, we're apartment kids. Yeah. The, the, the shock, the culture shock to take a kid who was born in an urban environment with 5 million people in a concrete jungle and then strip all of that away and dump them in the middle of a, the bush. <clears throat> the bush. Serious bush. It's got to be, it's got to be the similar breakdown for, you know, a guy who's got everything going in a direction that he thinks is his world. Um, he's developed, you know, the comforts of life, quote unquote, and uh, this rapid spiraling starts to to pull him down into this situation where you've literally got 
everything yeah I couldn't, changed. I couldn't get a break. It's Nothing. like I, I feel like I couldn't get a break. And I'm wondering, you know, you know there's this very wrong-headed uh, view of spirituality that says if you're really serious about God, you're either going to be a pastor, a Christian school teacher, or a missionary, right? And people have this really twisted idea that that's, you know, if you really want to show that you're serious about God, you'll do the, one of those three things. I had done all three of them. I had been a pastor, a teacher, a Christian school teacher, and a missionary, you know, and not, I didn't think that way. But, you know, just looking at the surface, I mean, I was serious about serving God. This is what I wanted to do with my life. And I, I did. I built up a whole career based on that. And all of a sudden, you know, within, within the space of a year, it's just gone. It's completely gone. Hmm. And I get out on the island, and, they, you know, they, they literally drop you off. They, they pull the boat up to the shore. They kick you out, and they say, okay, your camera's up in the woods. Go for it, you know. And uh, after six days, I remember sitting on this rock. And that's like the, the first time I appear in the this, in this show is when I'm sitting up on that rock. And uh, I remember thinking, I said, Lord, you have taken away everything out of my life. It's all gone. You know, you have stripped away everything. And I remember I said on the show, who are you when everything's been stripped away? When everything you've, you've looked to for a sense of life or meaning or purpose is just gone. And I wasn't talking about being in the wilderness at that point. I was talking about my entire life. You know, it's all gone. And I said, Lord, you've put me in, the, in a place where the only thing I have left to, to lose is my life or my health. And you've put me in the highest concentration of cougars and black bears on the planet with a backpack, no gun, no, no food, you know, just living off the land. And for me, it turned into a, like a 40-day fast experience where he, was, he put me out there to take away that last bit of my strength. And, and leave me at a point where I was, I was so broken, I was literally physically dependent upon his strength to get through the day. Wow. All right, so give us the, the, the ground rules. What, uh, what are you allowed to take with you? Well, we had a list of about 40 items, and then we could, we could take 10 items off that list. And uh, my 10 items were I had a, a bushcraft knife, a folding saw, an axe, a zero-degree sleeping bag, bivy sack, two-quart pot, ferro rod, a gill net, uh, 300 yards of fishing line and 25 hooks. And then for my 10th item, I substituted uh, five pounds of pemmican instead of taking another item of gear. Pemmican is dried uh, beef, in our, my case it is bison, dried bison, which is powdered, and then filled with saturated fat. Just calories. It's just calories and protein. It's exactly what a person who's in uh, ketosis needs to fuel their body. And I figured five pounds of pemmican was five pounds of meat that I get to keep. Smart. Sounds like a winning plan, but you you had no idea where you, you were going to be. No, I had off, no right? idea. Um, I didn't even know what, what the name of the waterway was that I was on. That they uh, they don't tell you anything about where you're going, and uh, you, you just basically you get in the boat. They drove me about forty five minutes up the coast and pulled into a cove. And the first thing you're you're, you're very keyed into what you know, your resources are. And I remember looking at this forest and thinking, wow, it's way taller than I thought it would be. I was imagining a forest with smaller pines and smaller saplings. And uh, it was a forest of gigantic trees. Like, it's like the giant redwoods, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, we pulled in over a, a kelp forest that was there, and I thought that was a good, good, good sign. There was a reef on the one side and a rocky coastline on the other. And they pull up to the beach, and I hop out of there, and they give me my pack and my camera bag. My camera was in a you know, huge pelican case they have up at the top of the beach there. And then they leave, and it's all on you. So, you know, wilderness survival, your first objective is always shelter, fire, and water. Uh, that gives you the ability to, to create a stable camp. You know, your rule of three is you can survive three minutes without air, three hours without you know, heat or exposed to extreme cold, um, three days without water, and three weeks without food. So if you get your first three uh, solved, shelter, fire, and water, you've got to, three weeks to solve your problem. 
and I had those things on, on day one. I had uh, my first fire that night and uh, boiled a pot of water and had a provisional shelter set up. And uh, I didn't want to invest any time or energy in a, in a major shelter until I knew what the lay of the land was and the way the weather was going to act Behave. upon it. Yeah, and we had a, a huge storm. I, I picked out four different locations in my, my little forest there where I could potentially build a shelter. And we got a storm with like 65-mile-hour winds and driving rain and everything, and everything in my forest flooded. It was like covered with like a foot of water all the way through the entire forest except for one location, and that, that had to be my, my spot. So I started building my permanent shelter there. And, uh, yeah, I forget what day I moved into that, but it was you know probably a good week and a half, two weeks that I was in a provisional shelter mm. before I was able to move into my, my new home. Yeah. And you made that out of the contents of your, your rucksack? Yeah, they have a. They gave us a tarp. That was one of the provided items. And they give you things like a, a personal flotation device. You have a, an air horn, a bear spray, a strobe light. You have uh, signal flares. You know the safety equipment that they they provide. Plus, you have a satellite phone which you can use to call them. Uh, you wear a GPS tracker, a yellow brick, uh, all day, and you can send rudimentary text to them uh, back and forth. But with the communication stuff, there's no chit-chat. There's no calling up and just you know, in the evening to talk with the people at production. The phone only called them. Uh, it was there only for emergencies. We had very strict rules when we could use the communications uh, equipment. Um, yeah, basically, you're just completely cut off. You, you are by yourself, and you have total freedom to do anything you want, but you only want two things. You want a good meal and a good night's rest. And that's it. And you spend all day working to get those two things. Yeah. So after you got fire, shelter, and water taken care of, you bought yourself some time. You're in a rudimentary, you know, temporary shelter until you can figure out the weather patterns. What are you, uh, what are you starting to target? I mean, when the food, uh, the food part of the equation starts to play, uh, how, how does that look? Walk us through those first steps. The food equation begins to play immediately. Okay. That, uh, you, your first three days of total fasting, usually uh, I always get a, a screaming headache. Uh, I had a horrible migraine headache the first three days. And then that goes away, and you have the, you know, the horrible hunger pangs and, and that, that, that kind of pain. But then your body shuts off the alarm bells. You don't uh, – it, it gets the message. Okay, there's nothing here. I've screamed at you loud enough, and you're not getting any food. Okay, I'm just going to tone it down. You know what you have to do. And you, you live on this very uh, much your, – your flame is burning much lower. You can still do what you have to do. It doesn't hurt all the time, but you have uh, fatigue. And I, I was doing this as a 50-year-old man too, so I'm not, I'm not young. And uh, a younger man would recover from that quicker. Um, so yeah, you're, my first my first priority after I got those up was to scout the area and try and find uh, my food sources. I tried to get out of my cove. Uh, if I went to my southeast, uh, there was a ridge there that separated me from another cove, and I tried to get over that but couldn't because the the brush was just too dense. And uh, if I walked along my beach, I came to cliffs in both directions, and I could not walk out of my cove around the points on either side. So I had to develop that cove and uh, learn the tide cycle because the tide there varies from 8 to 12 feet a day. Oh, and wow. It's, it's huge. So at high tide, the water came right up to the forest edge, and at low tide, I had maybe 30, 40 yards of beach in front of me. And then it also uh, drained the reef out front and the, the coast on my side so I could, I could get farther down those coastlines at low tide. And my first objective was to find where the fish were. And looking in the water, I could see nothing. I saw no fish whatsoever. Uh, that area where that would drain around my beach was basically a desert. If you if the if the water came in, there's really no cover there. It's all just pebble beach everywhere or, or bare rock. Uh, all, I found out all the fish were hanging out in that kelp forest. 
and the only time I could get there was at dead low tide. Now, as the tide was going down, there was two channels I could get across to get out on the reef. And as the water would lower, I, I knew I could, at a certain point, I could jump across and get there. And then it would continue to low, but then it would then it would come back in. And if I stayed out there too long, I'd get trapped. So you have to right. timing just right. So at about uh, the two-week point, I started catching fish with a line and hook okay. out on the reef. But you know, my, my strategy was to, to do a two-pronged approach of get as much passive fishing infrastructure in the, in the water as possible. You know, long lines, trot lines, set lines, uh, nets. I had a gill net, and uh, the very first day I decided, well, okay, I've got one gill net, I'll make another one. I found a dead rope on the beach and took that apart to its basic fibers and carved a, a net needle and strung up some rope and started weaving a second gill net. I figure by the time I figure out how to add a gill net, I'll have this other second net. I can continue and, and get those things working for me while I was doing other things. But it, I didn't realize that because I had this onshore current coming in, it was driving all the debris from Quatsino Sound into my cove. And the waves would churn through that, that bull kelp and rip out uh, these big, long whips of bull kelp and drive them in towards the beach. So you string a net up in there, it's going to catch bull kelp all night long. So I'd go out at dead low tide to my net, and it was just loaded with like a dead body just of, of bull kelp just sagging down the net. And I have to use all my low tide time maintaining that net system or checking my lines. And I'd, the same thing would happen with the bull kelp would rip out my hooks. And I lost seven hooks in the first two weeks uh, to the bull kelp. So I realized this, this passive fishing thing, as I'm weaving a second gill net, I I'm, I'm, have this sinking feeling that gill netting is probably not going to be even possible where I'm at. And every stray log on, in, in Quatsino Sound would get driven in there and circulate counterclockwise in my cove. And, you know, a, a 600-pound cedar log does wreak havoc, havoc yeah, on, your, on, a, on yeah. a gill net. So by the time I had that second gill net set up, uh, I was already getting very frustrated with all the passive stuff, but I was hitting on active fishing. That was being successful. I mean, day 14, 15, and 16, I was catching multiple fish. Really? Then we got another storm in, and you know that's when all the passive stuff was getting destroyed. And by the time that storm let up, I had the second gill net set up. And uh, I remember one morning, it was probably about day 30 at that point, I go down to check my gill net in the morning, and the... It had fallen down. The tripod I had set up on the one side to hold it up had fallen down, and the surf had rolled it into a big ball, and it was just tied up to the to the rocks. And I, I go out there to, to pick up this net, and I was so frustrated. I just wanted to th- I just wanted to ditch it. Yeah. Just throw the whole thing through the in, in in the forest, and there was this huge kelp crab in the net, and I started untangling that net, and uh, wanted to get to that crab. <laughs> yeah. But the crab- how big are we talking? Like. Huge. Oh, they have they have claws like a lobster. Okay. And they're huge claws. Their body isn't really that large, and their shoulders have some meat. The other legs don't have. I kept calling them dungeness crabs. I was going to say, is it a dungeness? No, they're not okay. dungeness crabs. And the only reason I, I asked one of the Canadian uh, crew members up there at one point what kind of crabs they have, and he said dungeness. I'm like, okay, I'm catching dungeness crabs, and I had no idea. I'd never seen one in my life, and to me, they were dungeness, and I knew that they were expensive crabs. So it's like this this mental psychological boost that I'm eating expensive food out there. And, and they don't even bother with kelp crabs up in Vancouver. Oh, really? They don't even eat them. They, okay. just, you know, just, they just go after the Dungeness. So I'm eating these crabs and thinking I'm living high off the hog. Well, anyway, <laughs> the, the net, as I'm untangling that net, it became a metaphor for my life. Okay, that here I am doing the right thing. I mean, I'm a survival instructor. I know what I'm, I'm, I'm doing exactly what I taught other people to do. You set up the, the passive stuff first, and then you go active if, if you have time. And I was everything I did on the passive food gathering side was just 
being torn apart by wave after wave of debris and just being attacked. And it was like, dude, this is your life. I mean, here you are trying to do the right thing in life, you know, with your whole life. And it is wave after wave after wave of thing uh, of uh, things are just tearing it apart, you know, and, and it's all broken. And, and everything you try to do is just destroyed. And there was all kinds of things. I mean, at this point, I think God put me out there for that, that month of starvation to get me to the point where I'd admit the things that I did wrong in my own marriage and, and ministry and the, the contribution that I had to making it fail. And I did. You know, no one who gets divorced is, is guiltless. You know, and I had I had my failings in that. But I, one by one, as these things came up, I just confessed them to the Lord and he took care of them. You know, he, he forgave me for these things. And when all those things were gone, it was like there was nothing more I had to confess. It was like my, my slate was clean. And right on the heels of that, all these faces started coming in of people that had attacked us in ways which, you know, I'm not going to go into detail, but horrible, horrible things. I mean, things that would make a man want revenge. Really? You know? And these faces kept coming up. And I remember feeling the anger of the things. It's like, yeah, I screwed up. I did things that were wrong, but not everything. And these people, this person had, you know, done horrific things to me and the family. And that person, and these people didn't handle it, you know. And, and these faces, and one by one, I, I had, to, conf- I had to, to repent of my hatred for some of these people and feel the anger again and forgive them. And the Lord led me through this process while I was untangling this net. And by the time, at the end of the day, I had the net untangled and I had the crab free. And I thought that crab was dead. I take it back to the shelter. I sit him on my wood pile and I'm making a fire. I'm going to cook up this crab. And all, all of a sudden he comes to life and he's like, snap, snap. He's trying to kill me. So that was my first crab kill. I had to, you know, it was Mortal Kombat. Finish him. <laughs> so I kill this crab. And I remember after I, after I was eating this crab, it was just so delicious because it was, you know, this isn't Bugs and Slugs survival fare. This is a crab, you know, and he's a big meaty crab. And I remember saying, Lord, when I get out of here, I'm going to an all-you-can-eat crab place. I'm going to just pig out on crabs, and that is going to be, you know, that's going to be great. And uh, a few days later, I, I actually caught six northern kelp crabs in one, in one, uh, one session. And the Lord gave me that all-you-can-eat crab feast out there. What a haul. You know? Oh, it was, it was fantastic. And that was, they got it right on the show. That's, I forget what episode that's in, but they show me catching those crabs and, and just, just freaking out about you know, this huge emotional moment of, of catching these six crabs. And uh, I felt light as a feather internally at that point, you know, because all my, all my garbage had been dealt with. And uh, it was like the Lord said, okay, you did the hard stuff. Now we're going to, it's Huck Finn time. We're going to have some fun. And... He gave me that that crab feast, and uh, after that, I had another feast of uh, thirty-two keyhole limpets, which are a big meaty limpet. That was more food than I could actually eat in one What's, sitting. Walk us through that. What is a limpet? A lim- uh, limpet's a one-shelled mollusk. They they attach to the rocks, and they're not a filter feeder. They actually feed by scraping the rocks. And at the time, there was a red tide bloom, so all of your bivalve shellfish that that suck water in and filter it to feed, they were accumulating red tide poisoning, which is you know kill you dead kind of poison. It's not it won't just make you ill; it'll actually kill you. So we couldn't eat any of the mussels or clams or any bivalve shellfish. But the limpets eat off the rocks; they don't accumulate shellfish poisoning. So there's you know a dozen type of limpets out there, but the big ones are the keyhole limpets. It's like a, it looks like a little volcano; they've got a hole in the top. And they're quite large. They have this big meaty skirt that comes out underneath their shell. But they live in a tidal band, which is actually below the surf line. So you're not going to find them exposed on the rocks and easy to find. You actually have to go underwater. So it really, at dead low tide, if I went to certain areas, I could find keyhole limpets. And uh, 
one one night I was getting uh, bait for a box trap I had made, and it needed mussels, and it was the moon tide. So the the moon when the moon and the sun are in, in alignment, you get a huge, super high high tide and a super low low tide. And I went went out to the reef, and and the land, you know, the the sea around the one side of the island was all exposed. It was all just tide pools, and it was so low. And I go walking out there, and I found thirty two keyhole limpets, these really big meaty limpets. I was just in, in hog heaven, and they're they're really quite tasty. I also found an abalone, which are endangered there. And that thing was like like the size of a cereal bowl, this big meaty chunk in there. And I I was a good boy. I didn't kill it. But later when I was hungry, I just remember, because they don't run away. They're just stuck to a rock there. I could go back and get that abalone, but I never did. I left him alone. What's a What's a Pennsylvania guy who's got most of his chops developed in uh, in unique Brazilian bush doing with all that knowledge about keyhole limpets, red tide, counterclockwise tide cycles, and lunar, like you literally had already mapped out so many things that would have taken, I I mean, to call you observant would be one thing, but it's very clear to me that you went in with a base of knowledge that took... uh, it took a lifetime to develop. Well, I went in with a base of knowledge of, you know, basic principles of wilderness survival, how to build a shelter, how to make a fire in wet conditions, how to, how to handle a knife and all those tools. And, and a certain, there's a certain toolbox that you learn which can translate into just about any other environment. It's a universal language. Right. But every bush has its own particular dialect. And you have to get there and, and learn how that bush says fire, how that bush says food and shelter and all these things. And, and it's got its own little language that it speaks, and you have to pay attention. And the thing is, is you, you have no other distractions. This is your, you've got one job, you know what I mean? And it's to figure this place out. And you've got all day to do it. And you've got all night to lay in bed and think about it and then implement your plan the next day. So, yeah, the learning curve is steep, but you've got to, you've got to, your entire life is devoted at that point to learning that, climbing that learning curve. You know, and yeah, to figure out the tide pattern. I had no idea when they dropped me off if it was high tide, getting higher, getting low, whatever. You just have to watch. And then you see the progression of the tide, that it's about an hour later every day. It's going to, you know, that low tide is going to migrate through the day. And you have to plan your week and plan your day. Um, yeah, it, it's a very difficult thing to walk into an alien environment and pattern the natural cycles that are going on all around you. And especially there because you had the tide cycle throwing that in there and this very variable weather conditions. It could be sunny one day and, you know, in the morning and it's pouring down rain by the evening and, you know, sleet the next day. It's just constantly changing weather. Uh, yeah, for me, I mean, I was, I was embarrassed. I hadn't, it, it took me two weeks to catch a fish. You know, by, when they came out on day 20, 24 to weigh me, I had lost 25 pounds. You know, so I started out at 195, and I was down to 170 pounds or thereabouts. I, you know, don't quote me on those numbers. I'm just giving you an approximation. But, you know, I was I had lost 25 pounds in that first 24 days. You had some ketosis going on. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I was losing muscle mass rapidly and body fat. And, uh, yeah, you can't live that way for long. And people, it, it irritates me sometimes that people say on the show, well, people just go out there fat, and they just starved, starved away until the end. No, my body reserves were gone by that first month. I had no more, there was nothing more to give. And, and that's that three-week without food survival point where your body reserves will be gone in that, in that first month. You just don't have, you, you can't live at that level. If you're doing a hunger strike, you could lay in bed longer than that, but not working a 12-hour day. Yeah, you're working on a deficit. Yeah, you're working, you're constantly, you're, you're expending a lot of calories and, and nothing's coming back in. Right. And uh, until you learn to pattern the, the cycles and, and work yourself into a sustainable lifestyle, um, you know, my weight 
plateaued at, at about 160 pounds. I'd lost another 10 pounds after that, and it stayed there at 160. And then by the end, I was actually regaining some weight, which I'm very happy, very proud of that. You know, that was something I didn't even know until I was talking to one of the producers uh, after the show had all been been done. And I said, yeah, it was, you know, I, I'd stopped losing weight. He says, no, you actually were gaining weight when we pulled you out. So, yeah, that's that, that's the Lord taking care of me and showing me how to live. And, uh, yeah, learning how to, once I started eating crabs, I started doing really well. I probably ate about 50 or 60 of those northern kelp crabs out there. Um, the, yeah, the two turning points was uh, when I started catching crabs, and then I would go out every day. I'd go to the fish on the reef, and the, the water would go. I I'd pretty much abandoned the passive Fishing. stuff because yeah. it wasn't working. Yeah. And as the water would go down, I'd get out on the reef, and one day I had a day there where I didn't catch anything on the reef, and I thought, you know, am I fishing this place out? I didn't really know the habits. I didn't even know the names of the fish. I was catching striped sea perch and uh, kelp greenling, but I didn't know their names at the time. They're just uh, food. Yeah, they're just, you know, it's just what's for dinner. And I kind of fished out the area. I wasn't catching anything in my, all my spots. And I thought, you know, I'd never been down the, the west coast of my, of my territory there at dead low tide. And every time I'd gone there, the tide was either falling or rising. It was never at the actual bottom. And I didn't know if, I could, if that would open up any more territory. So one day I fished my way around the cove to the, to the northwest side. And I, I got, um, I got through, through some rocks. The water drained enough, and I could get through some rocks and went a little, little bit farther. And I came to another huge cliff, and there's just no way to get beyond this thing. And I caught a huge sea perch that day uh, sitting on this rock. I named that rock the fight chair, you know, because it was just a huge fish I caught. And as I'm fishing, I'm watching the water going down, down, down. And sure enough, this little rocky trail opened up around the bottom of the cliff. I could get around that last cliff at dead low tide. And uh, if I, I learned that I, as the tide was getting towards dead low, I could splash through that area and time the waves. I could get across this thing without falling in or, or getting pounded by the surf. And that opened up about 300, 400 yards of extra territory for me. And uh, that to me was like... New I, lease I, on life. Yeah, it was new lease on... It was, it was me getting a raise. That's how I felt. And that was um, what, a few days after I fell in, that happened. And... I remember I, I didn't film going down to the end of it because I wanted to explore it quick. The, the sun was going down. It was, it was, I didn't have much time to explore it that first day. So I set the camera up to, to shoot me walking away, and I went off and I explored this thing all the way to the end. And uh, about halfway down it, I found a tide pool. And I look in this tide pool. It's like the size of a you know, small swimming pool. And there was uh, five northern kelp crabs that were hiding in the rocks in this thing. And I had my fishing pole there, and I caught all five of them. So when I, when I came back, I had this... I, I had this crab feast. This place is already paying <laughs> off, you know. And uh, I had that. I had a big fish and I had these crabs and everything. So it was just a fantastic, uh, fantastic day. And before I left that tide pool, I filled it up with those poisonous mussels. I, I crushed a bunch of mussels and threw them in there, knowing that the tide's going to come in and flood that again. Those crabs and that's going to be an attractant to, to take crabs in there. So I came back the next day, and there's five more crabs in that pool. Wow, man. So, that pool. So my, there's your passive fishing plan. Coming, yeah, that was coming together. Right? right, that was the only passive thing that I had going for me at that point. Was I knew where all the crabs would hang out, and there were certain places and tide pools where I was, you know, I was pretty much assured of finding a crab if I searched these certain places. And uh, my pattern was then I would fish uh, at, at, that as the tide was going from from high tide down to low, certain places would open up on my coastline and I could get there and start fishing. And as the tide got lower and lower, I could get to better and better fishing places. And usually if I had had, you know, two or three fish or one to three fish, never caught more than three, I would knock off fishing and then go hunt crabs. 
because it was just they were just so delicious and I would go all the way to the end of my my uh, northwest coast looking for crabs and then head back home and eat wow wow incredible um you uh you ended up basically uh, out outwitting and outweighing and out uh, rivaling your peers um walk us through kind of the uh, the end of this process i mean you you basically spent 66 days uh in the wilderness and in the last 20 days it sounded like you had everything figured out pretty well i you know maybe even it, longer the, the show is structured as, as a competition but you don't feel that way in fact you know you're all good friends we, we had that, that week at boot camp and then we had a week of orientation you're all you know you're with people that love the bush and have skills and stories and and it's a great uh there's a great camaraderie like a like a brotherhood or you know fellowship of of, of those of the cast members and then they just scatter you all across the island and and you got to do what you do but you don't feel like you're in a competition i'm not it doesn't matter what the person in the you know the, down the coast is doing right yeah it, so you're none the wiser anyway yeah you have no idea what's going on anyway and, and what you do it doesn't affect them and what they do doesn't affect you is you're not getting voted off the island you're just performing it the best you can right so you know it, it you can you can leave there by injury you can leave there by decision you can leave there by starvation or illness or all these different things something is going to take you out and, and the show has a 90 percent fail rate 90% of the people who go on alone are not going to win. They're going to be there until they either leave or are taken out. And, you know, throughout the different seasons, highly skilled people have you know, left by injury or things like that. And, you know, how good are you at, at wilderness survival? I said this on the show. It might come down to how good are you at walking on slippery rocks. You know, mm-hmm. I fell many times out there, and any one of those things could have been a broken elbow, and that's, that's it, you know. So it's not all just skill. Your, your skill level will mitigate the effect of the bush, you know, by, by keeping you warm, keeping you dry, you warm, dry, watered, and fed. If you can do that every day, you can last another day, just do it again. And my area had enough food resources that I did not exhaust them. Now, had I been in another zone, maybe I would have, you know, left from starvation before that. I don't know. Um, it's just up to you to, to develop the resources and work out a strategy as best you can for what you've given and uh, see how long you can go. And at day 66, I was still, I still had plans. You know, I was uh, planning on taking my gill net and laying it down across a, a long, skinny tide pool up on the nor- northwest coast and baiting that for crabs. Um, that was, I still had some ideas I was working on. Um, the last couple weeks, I was eating really well out there. And they, they don't show that on the show because it would be obvious, you know, they don't want to show you doing too good. Or else, you know, they got to keep up the suspense, you know, until the, the final episode. But I was eating really well. Like I said, I was, I'd been gaining weight. And uh, I stopped dreaming about the outside world. That's the thing that really is kind of strange. In the beginning, I would dream about people and food, people and food. And at the end, I was dreaming about fishing and crabbing and wordless dreams of just being in the bush and being successful at getting food out of the bush. Um Psychologically, I adapted to the place, and then they told me I was done. Talk to us about that a little bit. That was a that was a fun day. I mean, I got up in that that morning, and it was a bright, sunny day, but really cold. It was you know right at the freezing point. And on Vancouver Island, when it's at the freezing point, it's that is a raw, intense cold that just chills you to the bone. I remember sitting there waiting. They, I knew they were coming out to do a media check and a media medical check, and. I was waiting and waiting. I wasn't doing anything that day and uh, waiting for them to show up. And then finally they, they arrived at, uh, at high tide 
and they got there so they could pull the boat right up on my beach. And they got out and they did. Uh, one of the cameramen got off. He had a large camera, and there there was the two cameramen there, which was not normal. Normally they would have one camera guy and they would restock my batteries. And I saw Sean get off the boat with a big camera. I'm thinking, oh, what's that about? You know, and he goes over to my camera and took my sound system off my camera and put it onto his. So now my wireless mic I'm wearing is talking to his camera. And the producer saw me notice this. He says, yeah, I want to do an interview with you back at your shelter because I've seen you've changed it. I haven't been back there in a long time. And we want you to explain it to us, what you're, how you've winterized the place. Because I had completely, you know, changed my shelter. So we go back there to uh, to do this and... and uh, Zach Green, the producer, he's, he's got a clipboard there, and he's asking me all these really relevant questions about my experience. And they had done an interview like that once before, you know, like a month earlier. So this was not – it was different, but it wasn't out of the ordinary. And uh, as he's doing this, uh, Chris Barker, the other camera guy, was in my shelter restocking my batteries. And I had seen him get off the, the, the boat with a big dry bag, which I assumed was full of batteries. And I knew, okay, they're, they're restocking me with batteries. I'm not going home today, you know. And um, I had no – inkling that I had won. I was, they're just doing an interview. So as they're, they're doing this interview, he's asking all these really relevant questions. It's like he ran out of decent questions and he's just making them up at this point. And I'm like, I'm being polite. I'm on camera, you know, and I'm just waiting for him to, to wrap this thing up. I'm thinking, dude, you know, you came here at high tide. The tide's going down. I'm already, you know, lost my first fishing spot. I want to go it. fishing. I want to go fishing. I'm not going to eat tonight. <laughs> if you guys just, just keep, you know, messing around doing this TV stuff. And as he's doing this, uh, he, he he ran out of questions, and it was like Sean Cable, the camera guy. He starts asking me questions, I'm like, "Oh, come on, the camera guy." I mean, cameramen are professionals; they don't inter- they don't partake of the thing, you know what I mean? And I'd never had Sean interview me from behind the camera, and it was just getting kind of weird. And then all of a sudden, I hear someone coming up behind me, and I turn around, and my daughter's standing there, and no I knew, way. I knew that moment. It was just as soon as I saw her, it was done. No one had to say anything. You know, and uh, she walks up to me, and I give her this big hug. And she says, "You did it," and I'm like, "I did it." And she's like, "Yeah, you did it. You're done." And uh, I'd won. And to me, it wasn't like, "Oh my goodness!" It wasn't like, "Oh wow, I just won a half million dollars." It was like, "Wow, I get to stop. I just get to stop. This trial is over. The trial's over. You know, I, I can just, I can stop, and I can just rest and eat and sleep and heal from all this." And it was done. And just, just to see Aaron standing there, you know, the, the people you, I thought about my kids all the time and, and to just turn around and have one of my kids just standing there. You know, that moment is burned into my mind. And after the, after the whole emotional explosion of that, I looked at the camera and I quoted that verse from Isaiah. And they didn't, they didn't put it in there. Maybe that was, or maybe I just, I think I quoted it. I might have quoted it all wrong. But to me, it was, it was just absolutely obvious at that point that the Lord had been giving me strength day by day, moment by moment, depending on him, to, to just continue to do what I was doing. And then, you know, give me dinner at night and then go to bed, get up in the morning and do it again. And in that last couple of weeks, it wasn't every night that I had a meal, but usually I did. And some of them were quite large, you know, like having an entire quart of fish fillet in my pot for two quarts of stew, which I could barely finish. And it was just humbling to see how the Lord was taking care of me in those last, uh, those last weeks that he turned the whole situa- situation around and gave me the strength to endure. You know, and, and to have Aaron there just show up out of the blue, and uh, it was amazing. Yeah. And, and she says to me, I, I said, I get to go home on the boat. Because every day they would come, you know, that once a week visit, they would, they would drive out of the cove in the, the, the boat. 
And I, I always thought, okay, one day I get to go on that boat. I'll probably have you know be on a backboard, but I'll get to go in the boat. And uh, I said, I get to go on that boat today. She says, yeah, you're going home. Because she knew I was leaving in a helicopter. I didn't know that. So as soon as, as soon as they tell you your win, all of a sudden, it, you're not filming anymore. You're just the subject of a TV show. And they're going to say, okay, we need a shot of this. We can do that. You can you know, pack up your gear, walk this way, do that. And they're, they become TV professionals again, doing what they've always wanted to do and film us, and they didn't do. And uh, so now you're, you, they're, they're running the show. And I go down to the beach, and one of the guys was saying, yeah, we're going to launch the drone and get some aerial footage. And all of a sudden, here, wop, wop, wop. And I think, that's not the drone. I turn around, here's that green helicopter coming in and lands on the beach because now it was like full low tide and it had a you know, big beach in front of me. So they land the, the helicopter, and I realize I'm going out of here on the helicopter. And uh, that was cool. So they, they film you, you know, walking to the helicopter, getting in, you know, get out, do it from another angle, this kind of thing. You know, they, they, they do their thing. So then finally the helicopter takes off and uh, took me to a cabin. There was a couple cabins there, and it landed right there because they have to keep us incognito. You know, they don't want the locals seeing who was coming out, you know, in, in the order and things. So they take us to the cabin, and they said, okay, you can go up. Those two cabins are for you and Aaron. You know, just pick one, and you know, we'll come by with some food. And I go up there, and I open up my door, and right over my bed was this picture of the soaring eagle. Come and, on. Oh, no kidding. No kidding. I saw that, and I'm just like. It's from Isaiah. Yeah. There's this picture of the soaring eagle. And I, I went to the to the owners of the place and said I'd like to buy that and you know two twenty Canadian paid you know that's hanging over my my mantelpiece right now really yeah oh, I kept that's that cool. I kept that photo that's so cool yeah they shipped it back for me so, so God was faithful I mean I, I, I well, the last thing I want is people to say oh yeah you know he did, he spent sixty six days out there he must be strong it's like no my strength was gone 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 and God gave me strength moment by moment. And that was the lesson that he wanted to teach me, is that he is faithful to give me strength in the midst of trial like that, and, and that he is dependable and he is faithful and he will provide for me exactly what he wants me to have. And that's in terms of experience and sustenance and, and strength and all that. Yeah, man. So, so cool, Dave. Thanks for sharing. Um, all right. Well, so Dave's got an amazing adventure story, and I'm, I'm so glad that he's taken the time to share it with us. Um, and it's especially meaningful to me it could could have been told in such a different way um and it's just it's cool to have somebody who's as humble as dave is tell it so how many people have you told this to where um they almost want to say yeah right get get the god stuff out of there i want to hear more about you oh there's people that are interested in the technical aspect of it yeah and but in my experience i can't see the alone is so intensely psychological that it, it, it will strip you down. It, it takes, you know, there's no facade. You can't maintain a facade out there or persona of, you know, this, this rugged adventure guy and, and be on camera every day like that and, and just hold it all together. It's going to wear you down to the person that you actually are. And the technical aspects of it are, are all interesting, but to me they're so intertwined with the psychological and I would say spiritual aspect of it that where do you get the, the mental uh, strength to or the emotional strength to endure and to not quit because that's the thing you know you have that tap out they call it the button you know the button was for emergencies normally they just ask you to call them on the phone and say bring me home you've you've got that instant out all the time and it's always there it's always an option you know it's not, I'm not a navy seal but you know the navy seal uh, selection program is a set of the same way yeah, they got the bell. Just ring the bell, you're done, and no, no harm, no foul. We'll send you back to your former unit. You know, so they do that with the seals to to give people. You know, how how much do you really want this thing? You know, you can leave at any time, any moment, and and to 
to be able to see it for the unique opportunity that it was that these things don't just happen. It doesn't come along. The opportunity to help my kids out and 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 to stick with it. And that's the the psychological part of it to me is more interesting than the technical aspect. I mean, all of us were qualified to be there. All of us had the technical skill to be there. Um, it, it comes down to how much do you want to stay and, and to, to do this yet another day. For you, it, it almost seemed as though the, the technical side was the afterthought and you were deeply engaged in, in a struggle with uh, dare I say, sp- spiritual struggle with what had been stripped from your from your previous life? Yeah, it was uh, it was just one of those moments where you, you sit back and you realize how how much you've lost, you know, and to, and to be in that place where you've lost now everything. Yeah, there's nothing here yeah. from my former life other than the fact that I still have a pulse, you know, and and then to go through that process of fasting and, and losing even my physical capabilities. To the point where you know strength was, there was no. Dave McIntyre didn't have any strength left. You know there was nothing left of me. You could see the ribs in my the the bones in my chest. You know and and my my legs were like sticks and and there was just nothing left of me. And that was the point where and the Lord was showing Himself faithful. Okay, He was providing for me. He stabilized me out there. And as long as He was doing that, who was I to say, Yeah, I'm going to call this off and go home and eat Twinkies. You know, I'm just going to call this off because I miss bacon. You know, he, he I knew he was going to call it off at some point. Wow. I, it was parenthetical. I couldn't stay there forever. Right. It was going to end one way or the other. And I did not ever dream I was going to just win it. Yeah. You know, I thought, I'm going to get hurt. They'll be done. Someday I'll be laying in the rocks and they'll be looking over top of me and, you know, unpacking a backboard and, and haul me out of there. Yeah. You know. But if I'm hearing you correct, this was an exercise in obedience. Yeah. He called me there. He called me. I, I said that in the beginning, and they put that in the show. You know, God calls me into things. He's called me into this, and he has his purpose. And as long as he hadn't revealed that purpose to me, I was stuck. I, I didn't feel like I had the right to call it off. Wow. And I was such a unique opportunity, and he had put me in that place, and obviously he was doing something with it, and I was, I was still learning. But I remember getting to the end. At the end, I remember praying. I said, Lord, I'm not learning anything new here. You know, I know you're faithful and you're taking care of me. This hurts really, really bad. And also the fact that I'm here means someone else is out there too. And, and they're going through this as well. And how long is this, how long does this have to last for you to teach me what you want me to te- want me to know? And I thought, you know, I'm praying this with a broken ankle in view. Hmm. You know, that's what I'm saying. If you're going to take me out, then take me out. You know, this is, is becoming torturous. Yeah. And, and it was. Yep. Which leads us to our life lesson. Um, Dave, if you had one crack at trying to summarize um, such a monumental event in your life, what would, uh, what would one sentence look like? That God is absolutely in control and that I am never alone. Okay, uh, some rapid-fire questions, and then we can get you out of here. Okay. Um, Dave, you have uh, a YouTube channel, and you walked us through what a Possibles kit contains. Tell our listeners what a Possibles kit is. 
uh, the possibles kit on, that I did on the video there is a, it's my purse. Okay, it's my wilderness purse. All the things that I think I might need on a regular basis uh, to have them all in one, one place. Um, there's a lot of things in there which would help me in a survival situation, but it's not a comprehensive survival kit. My possibles kit has things in there like uh, my compass, sharpening gear, fire making, uh, medications, things which I know I'm going to need and want to keep in one spot. Extra batteries, and I normally have a lighter on me or a ferro rod or some, some means to, to light a fire. I, other than my knife, that's uh, my my everyday carry stuff in my pockets. Maybe I'm kind of kind of boring, but I've just never seen the need uh, here in Grand Rapids to carry wilderness gear. I mean, as somebody who's going to be as observant as you are, being in an environment where um, you have a, a, a metropolis mm-hmm. at your disposal, I mean, you can be crafty in the way that you go acquire things if, as long as they're within you know walking distance running distance or arm's yeah. reach. If I'm going on a road trip, I do throw a survival kit in the car. Yeah. You know, I do have things. If I'm going to go up like northern Michigan or something, I do. You're going to be on stretches where you don't have the conveniences of a metropolis. Right. Like in the right. winter, you throw a sleeping bag in the, in the trunk and an extra winter coat and hat and gloves and all that stuff. And Cool. Um, yeah, I do. I, I Like in my Jeep, I have a Woodson's Pal and a machete and a knife and fire-making materials and all that stuff in, in the Jeep. Uh, I don't normally carry that stuff on my person yep. uh, here. Though if I am going in the woods, I have a, a neck knife, which is set up as a personal survival kit. Yeah. And uh, another smaller survival kit I put in my pocket and one that I put in my pack. So yep. a survival kit should have items that you're not planning to dig into on, on a normal trip. Like say I'm going to go on a day hike up to the you know peak of a mountain and take photographs or something. I'm not planning to make a fire, make a shelter, have to get water. I have a day pack. I've got my lunch in there and maybe an extra coat or whatever. But the survival kit covers my needs for shelter, fire, water, signals, navigation, and food gathering. That that is something which I know that you can, for all those components, you can bushcraft those with your blade. Okay, that's like advanced level survival. You could go out there with the blade, you know, knife-only course, and make yourself a shelter, make a bow drill, and, you know, purify water, boiling it in a bark container, and all that stuff takes time. All that stuff takes too much time to affect wilderness survival. Okay, I make a distinction between bushcraft and survival. Bushcraft is great, learning your skills and tools and making what you need in the bush. But when it comes to survival, I want that coming out of a kit right now. I want to have a fire without fail. I want to have a shelter over my head within minutes rather than the rest of the day. I want to have a compass to navigate, not a science project. i got to float a leaf on a needle on. Okay, I, I want a, a signaling devices which are going to get attention to other people right now, meaning a mirror, a whistle, you know, flare, whatever it is. I want those things in that kit. And the, the people make survival, they call it a survival kit, but it's really just a collection of nifty things. It's got to serve certain functions. It's got to get a roof over your head. It's got to keep your body heat stable. It's got to keep you hydrated. It's got to let you attract attention to yourself or self-navigate or self-rescue by navigation, getting out of where you are. And uh, I don't concentrate heavily on food gathering because, like I said before, you got three weeks to solve that. And it's very rare that a wilderness survival emergency goes that long. Um, yeah, the survival kit. My, my survival kit has a two by three meter plastic tarp in there, machine folded in its package, wrapped in duct tape. I've got a space blanket, you know, for controlling body temperature, uh, compass, whistle, LED flashlight, a knife, water purification tablets, five gallon uh, or five liter water bag, um, tinder, lighter, ferro rod. Trying to think off the top of my head, what else? El sounds, paracord. Sounds like you got it all it's, covered. It's comprehensive. I know that with I, if I open up that kit, 
I will be under a dry roof with a pot of boil of, of water treated, you know, in front of me with a fire in, in a matter of an hour rather than working on it the whole day. You see, a survival kit can give you that in the dark when you realize you're lost or after you break the ankle or whatever. And, and having to do all those things with blade skills, though, that's all fine and good. But try it with a broken finger. Try it with a broken knee. You're not going to get it done. Right. You know, making a bow drill fire. I love doing that. But you're not going to do it on demand in the dark in the drizzle with a broken finger. You know, and that's what survival looks like. It's ugly at that point. I want that little little two pounds of happiness coming out and making a camp for me. Yeah, that's cool. What favorite uh, method of fire? Favorite method of fire? I appreciate the ferro rod. Um, I, I love making instant fire tinder in the bush here, especially here in Michigan where you got balsam fir and cedar bark and you mix the two and poof, you got a fire instantly that burns for 10 minutes. It's just a great, a great tool. Cool. I love my ferro rod. Transitioning on books. Uh, Dave's authored uh, a book. Dave, tell us a little bit about that and uh, where we might be able to find that. I have a fiction series on Amazon Kindle that's called The Fall. And uh, the basic premise of the series, it's, it's three books now. I'm working on book four, and it will be a six-book series. But the basic premise is that a virus has wiped out 90% of the Earth's population, and the 10% that did not die from the virus wake up psychotic. And my character wakes up, he's in his right mind in this com- incredibly altered situation and uh, surrounded by people that want to beat him to death. So he has to survive. You know, I wrote the book because I, I love the zombie apocalypse genre, but I hate zombies. I can't figure out how they work. <laughs> and, you know, and they're not really that scary. And in most zombie stories, they turn into part of the weather. You know, it's just hot, dusty with staggering corpses. And the, the characters just run through their world, pop, 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 they shoot them all in the heads and they get on with the drama. And I wanted to write the story in a way that the zombies became part of the cast and part of the story, and there's a serious twist on the zombie apocalypse. My zombies aren't dead, they're just crazy, and to me, a staggering corpse is not nearly as terrifying as a 35-year-old woman with a crowbar, (laughs) you know? That's, my zombies run, they run towards gunfire, they are competing with my cast for food resources, and they're everywhere, and it's scary, and... I love this story. And they become part of the cast. That sounds freaky. Um, tell us a little bit about your wilderness school. Uh, right now, I, I am teaching in different people's venues around. Uh, I am open to invitations to come uh, teach wilderness survival at your location. I don't have a place of my own to do it. Um, mainly, I've been doing that with churches, you know, father and son campouts and things like that all around the country. And uh, it's, a, it's a great time. Cool. And where where do we point folks as far as finding more information on that? Uh, DaveMcIntyreWilderness.org. And there's a uh, you can see all the different things I do, and there's a sign-up sheet and uh, or a contact form there. You can get a hold of me by email. Awesome. Dave, thanks so much for spending some time with the Adventure Deficit community. Your story is, uh, is not only compelling, but it's, uh, it's uplifting. Appreciate you, man.